Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to strength and conditioning coach, speaker, and lecturer, Dan Baker. Thanks for tuning in to episode 280 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this guy needs absolutely zero introduction. So anyone that has seen or heard Dan speak before, it's an absolute treat. No matter what he speaks about, whether it's his work with ASCA, whether it's his velocity-based training stuff, whether it's his time with the Broncos, it's always absolute gold. So it was great to get him on. I lined him up for episode 100, because it was a bit of a benchmark, obviously given the, given the number. And it was great to get him on. I reviewed that episode from over three, well over three years ago. So we revisit a lot of the same themes from that episode in this episode and get a bit of a refresher on what's new in velocity-based training, uh, all the basics of VBT as well. But we also start off, and this is a bit off the cuff, on his work with the ASCA and what the ASCA are doing to safeguard their membership, basically. So this is something that has gained a lot of traction over the last couple of months and years with the structure that the ASCA have put in place with within the industry and with governing bodies in Australia. It's kind of held as a bit of a, a benchmark for other uh, associations around the world. So it was great to get his input being the president of the ASCA. So it's a really cool episode. Really, really enjoyed chatting with Dan as always. Thoroughly entertaining. And it, I'm sure it'll definitely be a, uh, an episode that you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dan Baker. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So almost three years of the day when I spoke to Dan first, I am delighted to welcome him back for a part two. So welcome to the podcast, Dan Baker. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So if anyone wants a rerun of the background and, and what you've been doing pre three years ago, so pre-2017, they can jump back on episode 100. Yeah. But it'd be great to get a bit of a rerun of that, plus what's been happening in the meantime and what's been going on with you, ASCA-wise, course-wise, travelling, the whole lot. Yeah, well, I've just basically continued on from 2017. Um, if I start with the ASCA, of which I'm president, um, well, there's been a lot of uh, demand for our courses. Um, we have a multi layered certification process where we have uh, four layers of certificates, development one, two, and three, 
and most of our coaches do one or two. Three is uh, not necessary. It's, uh, it's uh, an add-on when you're already an experienced coach. But so basically one and two, and they're in big demand around the world. So we're doing courses now in uh, uh, Poland, Netherlands, Ireland, uh, China, Philippines, India, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia. <laughs> um, did I say the Netherlands? I think I did. But anyhow. You did, yeah. yeah so we, That's good. And we've got more to come. Uh, as more people want it in different places, we'll, we'll do them there. Um, so the ASCA has been expanding. We, we run good courses, but we have different levels of courses. So um, the, some people find that uh, advantageous to have a, a, like a level one course and then progress to a much more difficult level two. And ASCA, you're a government uh, certificated strength conditioning coach. So that separates us from other organisations or professional or uh, private teachers. You know, they give you a certificate. I don't even know what that means in some countries, but in Australia, a certificate means it's an official thing. And uh, we also uh, we have an Australian government uh, card as a strength conditioning coach. So that, that's what a lot of people want. And also, you can't work in pro or Olympic sports in Australia unless you're ASCA qualified. So it doesn't matter if you've got Billy Bloggs' famous certificate in this or that and you come to Australia. It doesn't mean pinch of shit. You've got to have ASCA <laughs> certification in Australia to work in pro sports or Olympic athletes. It doesn't matter who you are, what other things you got. you got to have a PhD in elephant juggling. It doesn't matter. You've got to have ASCA qualification. So, therefore, if people want to come to Australia, if they're from a country that has, um, you know, for young people, reciprocal rights to work for one or two years, a lot of Australia has that with a lot of countries like uh, the UK, US, Canada, Ireland, uh, where young people up to 35 can come and work in Australia for one or two years, then they need an ASCA certificate. It doesn't matter what they've got. Oh, I've got CSCS. Yeah, sure, good. Try and convert that to an ACA, though. And, and we do have a RPL uh, process where we'll help people with a CSCS or UKSCA to convert to an ASCA qualification, but you still will need to make that conversion, uh, which we will help facilitate. Obviously, those countries don't facilitate ASCA changing into their countries, but we are benevolent and uh, much bigger than that. So we will help people who have another qualification get ours. So, and uh, my, me personally, uh, I've got my own VBD courses, which are run with the aid of PUSH. So VBT means velocity-based training. We have courses all around the world. We have it in, right now in uh, four different languages, um, obviously English, Japanese, Chinese, and in um, French as well, I think we can do it in. And I think possibly Spanish as well, we'll, we'll either is soon. Um, and they're taking off right around the world as well because they're a really good course for if you want to know how to use a velocity measuring device, whether it's push or another device um, you use. It doesn't really matter. You can attend our course and uh, we'll show you all about velocity-based training. So that's that's the two main things that are going on. Um, I'm going to China a lot, doing a lot of ASCA courses there. I was there last week, just avoiding getting that virus, luckily. Um, <laughs> um and I'm probably go to China maybe eight times a year doing ASCA courses. So I'm pretty pretty busy traveling uh, to lots of places uh, to do courses and uh, conferences. Nice. So one thing that's – yeah, no, absolutely. So one thing that's been – well, always talked about in our industry is salaries and salary recommendations and whether associations should be doing more. And ASCA kind of held up as – the pinnacle of what other associations should be striving for with this, these seller recommendations that you came out with maybe last year or the year before. Just want to talk to you a little bit about, I just think it'd be going off tangent a little bit, but it'd be interesting for listeners to know the, the process that you guys went through to actually gain that and what that actually means for coaches in Australia or with anyone with ASCA. Yeah, interesting you say that, Robert. I'm, I'm happy to speak. Uh, both the ASCA, UKSCA and NSCA are going to re- release a joint paper soon in each of our own countries. And one of that is uh, we did a salary review. And I can't, in this forum, uh, tell you the results. The NSCA ones, you can, if you're an NSCA member, you can clearly um, go onto their 
that they show their salary results that's from the salary survey of 2018. Uh, I don't know if the UK has published theirs yet, so I don't want to say anything. But uh, and the ASCA hasn't published ours, but it'll come out soon. But I think you'll find when when people see the results, they'll be quite surprised about which country, or maybe not quite surprised, which country has the highest salaries of strength conditioning coaches. And what I'll say is, one thing I've tried to do with this board that I'm part of, the ASCA board, is drive the recognition of strength conditioning as a professional, as a profession. Now, professions get good salaries. You don't ever see a poor doctor or a poor physical therapist or something like that. They're, they're esteemed professionals, as they should be, and they're remunerated as they, as they should be. So if we work to do that in strength conditioning, but we recognize that you know, there's different levels of strength conditioning. So someone who has a certificate two uh, or ASCA level two certificate and has worked 10 years with Olympic athletes or professional athletes has much more experience than a graduate with level one first day on the job. So we have recommended salaries uh, or salary bands or zones that are based on the certificate level you have, how many years experience you have, and the level of athlete you have experience with. So, for example, if you have eight years experience with high school athletes, that's a wonderful thing. But if someone has eight years of experience in professional rugby or professional soccer or with the Olympic swimming team, they the people with experience with high-level athletes can and do command a higher salary. And I don't think we would begrudge anyone that. So... We have linked our salaries to your certificate, years of experience, and level of the athlete you're working with. Now, also, we have to have this clear. Many countries have a minimum wage. UK and uh, the US, they have a minimum wage. That's across all industries. In Australia, we have a minimum wage, which is the highest in the world. It's like $19.30 to an hour Australian. So if you're doing the worst job with the lowest skill. That's the least amount of money you can get in a full-time job. It's $19.30 to an hour full-time. If you're only working part-time, that's about 20% of that. So we're a high-wage society because, you know, we are. However, most professions have a minimum wage for their professional or their job. So as a coach, the minimum wage for a level two coach, no matter what, a level two coach, strength conditioning, or any sport, whether it's swimming, soccer, full-time work, the minimum salary is about $58,000 a year. So therefore, we go above that for anyone with more experience and higher-level athletes. So if you're an elite-level coach, which is, for example, uh, a level two and six years working with professional Olympic athletes, then the minimum wage that the ASCA suggests you earn is $90,000. So it goes like that. So if you're somewhere between two to six years, you should be getting between sixty to ninety thousand dollars. If you're six years with a high level athletes, it should be at least ninety thousand dollars. Now, if you're a level three coach and ten years, then you should be getting at least one hundred ten thousand dollars. So it works something like that. So what is the mandated government minimum through to basically twice as much? So that's what we've tried to do. We, we have a minimum that the government sets and is enforced by what's called the Fair Work Ombudsman. So if an employer is not paying that to an employee, it's not the job of the ASCA to chase them down. The employee can just go to this government ombudsman and say, this person is involved in my wage theft. Can you please enforce a law for me? And they do. And as many big companies across many industries being caught out doing this, the Australian Broadcasting Mission, the ABC, um, big big companies, uh, grocery companies, etc., have been underpaying some staff slightly. Sometimes it's accidental, sometimes it's not, but the Fair Work Ombudsman, it's their job to chase down employees who don't pay their employees the proper amount in Australia, across all industries. So, of course, we have that as a backstop. We can negotiate higher wages and Luckily, our uh, our high-performance sports, our Australian Institute of Sport, our professional sporting teams, they realise if you want the best people, then you have to pay 
above this mandated government minimum $58,000. And they've been very good in that, mainly. So I know this wasn't the topic of the chat, but I think it's really interesting for people to hear. So how who enforces that above the government minimum? Is that so if you've heard that, I don't know, just because your, your previous involvement, Brisbane Broncos were paying below that ASCA recommendation, is there anything that you can do about that apart from recommend? Right now, I can't. We can't, no. But uh, if it's a government agency, like a government institute of sport, like, the, for example, the Queensland Academy of Sport, because it, it's a government thing, it just won't happen. They say government things in you, you'll just go straight to your uh, the human resources department and saying, they're not paying me the right amount. Uh, it's, I should be on this band. So all these government things, it's just regulated. It's, as you know, any government job, there's a certain band or, or level. Uh, in the... F- in the market right now for pro sports, we can't enforce it, but uh, we're working on that. Again, if we get, uh, if we expand that, uh, the what's called the award or the uh, mandated salary for sport coaches or strength conditioning coaches, we will work on that. And obviously, we're, we might have to work on a league-by-league league basis, and we're doing that right now. We're having discussions with the various pro leagues, and obviously the players want that. The players don't want to be strength conditioned by a first year graduate on fifty eight thousand. When the player's career is at stake, he's coming back or she's coming back from a rehab injury, and you've got an inexperienced person dealing with them versus a person who, who can deal with them in a much better situation. The players want the best people, so the players don't care them. Uh, the players want the best staff to look after them because if you get an extra, if you're a professional rugby player and you're on a million dollars a year and you get actually two years out of your career through better strength conditioning, you're better off because you're not paying the strength conditioning coach. Your club is. So why wouldn't those players want the best staff they could get rather than, oh, let's save the club money and perhaps shorten my career or decrease my chance of winning bonuses and, and, and uh, things like that, performance bonuses. So definitely the players are right behind us. I think most of the leagues are. They're just it's going to take time sometimes uh, – uh, the budgets are put in place one or two years beforehand, and so we're working on that with the leagues to set some minimums. You know, how many of each level should a club have? How many elite coaches or master coaches? How many professional coaches, and so on. So it, it's a work in progress with the leagues, with the governments already there. All with all government institutes of sport or any sport that gets funding for the Olympics, it's already there. It's just a pro sports with a, a work in progress. So at this moment, progressing definitely. Okay, excellent. So at this moment in time, how much compliance is there with pro sport? Given it's just a recommendation rather than a kind of enforcement, have people been pretty um, good? Well, it's pretty good because otherwise you're getting a bum coach. Yeah, well, they have to pay the government down at, the, at the very worst. They're going to be paying fifty eight thousand dollars a year. Of course. Okay, so that's the very least they can pay, $58,000 a year. So Australian dollars, which is, say, 45000 US or something like that. And what's, I don't know how many pounds it is, maybe 30,000 pounds. So I see jobs in England for 20,000 pounds, and I think, well, that's to be illegal in Australia. So, you know, it's even the very minimum in Australia is better than uh, what I see in a lot of other countries, and that's the very minimum, legal minimum. Someone might not be getting that, but they're paying it, being paid illegally. Okay. Happy days. Well, that's another going off tangent a little bit, but I think it's interesting for people to know. No, it's important thing, man. One of the main things our members always say in a survey is they want better professional development, and that's part of what your podcast does, and they also want better salaries and conditions and knowledge of their rights about their salaries and conditions. So we're covering both today, so that's wonderful. Just, I've got one more question on this. I think this will be really interesting for people as well. In terms of coaches who are, however you want to call it, sacked, released, let go, you know, whatever whatever the term you want to use, what do the ASCA do in terms of looking after them guys and helping them on a maybe a legal basis or just for further employment? How yeah. do you guys help with them? Uh, well, well, we, you know, we can't. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a word again. You, you can look at your contract, then it becomes contract law. Uh, you know, you have to go see a, a shyster, a lawyer, or something like that. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, 
from experience in pro sports that if they want to let you go, they will try and screw you over. Uh, you know, I know great coaches who've been screwed over at the last minute because uh, the head coach changes and head coach wants to bring in his other strength conditioning coach. So we, ASCA isn't a problem there because, you know, one's, one of our members is getting that new job and one is being let go. It's not as if so you can't <laughs> yeah. sort of take off. Um, but in the situation is you, you need to know your, your rights. Um, all ASCA professional coaching members have, as part of their membership, a half-hour consultation with our lawyers. Now, that's not going to solve your problems, but half an hour the lawyer can say, yes, you have a case, come and see us or see someone or listen, mate, you get have to grin and bear it uh, or whatever. But we have for free a half-hour uh, consultation for our members. So that's one of the things we try and do. We always, and a lot of our members don't even know this, no matter how many times you just tell them at a conference, <laughs> you know, and they forget because, you know, they think, oh, I don't need a lawyer, and then something happens, they forget. And, you know, to lose your job is a quite stressful situation, um, and they forget about uh, they have rights to a lawyer. Um, and, you know, and how some of the clubs do it, it can be quite sly. They, they, they say to you, oh, listen, just come on, let's talk about next year, and you go up there, and all of a sudden they say, we're not ruining, you're ruining you for next year, clean out your desk. And leave now. We'll give you two weeks' pay, and you didn't even know. So you get blindsided, and that's basically what how they often work. Um, uh, from what I've been told, when it's happened to people, um, you know they they are quite sly like that. So well, we're trying to work beyond that and get better, and, and uh, you know that, because that's not a professional way to do it. But they, some people will do that because you know they're not good people. And people who do that, you know, they should be upfront and say. But something else. But anyhow, uh, that does happen, unfortunately, to even to great coaches. Yeah, because a new head coach comes in, wants to bring his own people. It's like when a lion takes over a pride, he kills the offspring of the previous dominant male uh, to leave no genetic trace. Or a new head coach comes in, he or she likes to get rid of all their strength conditioning and assistant staff from the previous coach to leave no genetic DNA on the previous coach. So that's fairly standard, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, let's get into the um, what we actually, well, what I actually plan to, to fire over your way. And we covered some of this back in 2017, early 2017. But it'd be good to get a bit of a refresher uh, on VBT. And just to start off, the basics of velocity-based training. So just tapping into something, probably you cover in the course as well, but why measure velocity in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. It's Velocity, I measure velocity to make me to allow me to make better decisions about my programming and to tell me uh, three main things. What is my strength level that day? So your best rep reflects your strength level in comparison to lifting that same weight on previous occasions. The last rep in a set tells you your acute fatigue level or, or, or your uh, – how far from failure that last rep was. And then once you know those two things, you can make better judgments on the amount of weight or the reps or the rest period or how many sets you're going to do in the workout compared to what was planned. Now, the other thing, the other third thing is just it's extremely motivating, especially on exercises where there's no failure, like jump squats or throws, you know, like you can do five jumps or you can do five really hard jumps or you can – you know, throw a medicine ball against the wall and you'd be half-assed about it or you can throw it with maximum intent. So that's the third thing. So, you know, one is to know your strength. Second is you know your fatigue level. And the third is just the motivation, especially for power exercises. When you have all those three things, you have better training and uh, you make better decisions in your programming. So uh, you might think I'm going to do three sets with 100 kilograms but, uh, you know, at RP level eight, thinking oh, I've got two reps left in the tank in each set. But you get to the second set and the RP was, you think it's 10 and you look down at your device when you finish and you see, yeah, my uh, velocity suggests that was a maximum effort. Now, if you stay at that weight for the third set, you're either going to do three or four reps and fail or do you stop it and just do two sets or you drop it back to 95. You, you have to make a decision one way or the other, but it helps you make an informed decision. You know, now whether you choose one of those three options is up to you, but it allows you to make good decisions then. So we 
we'll we'll dive into a few of them uh, well all of them uh, a little bit later on but just going back to the basics so when someone performs the bench press they're going to get different readings from their chosen velocity um measuring tool so they're going to get average and peak would you mind just running us through where you may use one or where you may use the other yeah uh, for almost all people just use the average velocity per rep for strength exercises so when i mean strength exercise i mean i mean bench press squat deadlift pull-ups any pressing any rowing exercise anything you do for strength or muscle use the average or mean velocity per rep as a thing to look at when you're doing really light power exercise like jump squats with body weight you know like just body weight um throws with medicine balls uh, any Olympic lifting or weightlifting movement, cleans, snatches, jerks, you look at the peak velocity because that's the biggest indicator of uh, your success is the peak velocity. So average velocity for strength exercises, peak velocity for power exercises. Now, some heavier power exercises like jump squats with 45 or 50%, you can look at both. And same for the Olympic lifts, you can look at both. But uh, the peak velocity on Olympic lifting is always more important. Um, on heavier jump squats and heavier bench press throws, of course the weight doesn't move very far. Uh, you, you won't jump high off the floor. If you have 50% 1RM on a jump squat, you're not going to move very far off the floor um, or 50% bench press. You, you don't throw it very far in the air. Average velocity is pretty good in those exercises as well because of the limited range of motion and etc. But uh, the lighter the weight and the faster the speed, look at peak velocity, and any heavy lifting, especially as strength exercises, look at the average velocity. Now, when you have that in a strength exercise, you'll also have um, a decline in velocity. So if you do a set of 10 squats, you'll have you, your highest velocity should be the first rep. Occasionally it might be the second, but it should be the first. And then it will decrease across those 10 reps. So uh, there's a, also a decline in velocity or velocity loss percentage you might want to look at. Cool. So again, we'll get into that a little bit later. There's another thing that I know you spoke quite a bit about in your 2016 or 2017 UKCA um, conference presentation, which which was excellent, and I'd encourage people to to have a little look at on the uh, UKCA website. But the minimum velocity threshold, do you want to talk us through that and why that's important? That's super important to know. So every exercise has a minimum velocity threshold. Basically, it's a speed below which you fail. It's your 1RM speed. So if you know this, then you can control how far you stay away from training. So for most people who are really strong in squats and experience, it's 0.25 meters per second. So between 0.2 and 3, but mainly 0.25. So at 1RM, you're 0.25. On the third rep of a 3RM, you're 0.25. On the fifth rep of a 5RM, you're 0.25. So it's the speed below. If you go any slower, you fail. So it's a good thing to know. So if I had an athlete who I didn't want to train too hard today, say we have a, a rugby game on Saturday and it's Wednesday and we're doing squats, I might say, I don't want any of your reps to drop below 0.4. That way I know you're a fair way from failure. So that's easy. Or I want you to try to effort level 9.5 today in the squat. So it's something may keep going up in weight for doing three reps or five reps till your last rep gets to maybe 0.32, 0.33. That will tell us you're about 9, 9.5. So we just need to know our minimum velocity threshold for all your key exercises. And all it takes is doing a set to failure, a heavy set doesn't have to be one RM. You can do three RMs or five RMs. But if you do a heavy set to failure, typically of lower reps, fives or below, then you'll know that what this minimum velocity threshold is. You don't have to do it all in the one day. You can do it in different exercises on different days. But across one or two weeks, you'll have it. Once you have it, you have it. And the good thing to know is if you do it for bench press, it's pretty much the same for all pressing exercises. Then you'll know it for dumbbell bench press, for overhead press, and things like that. And it's pretty much the same for all squatting exercises. So for me, my uh, back squat uh, minimum velocity threshold is 0.25. If I put on a safety bar, a safety squat bar, do it, it's still 0.25. <laughs> if I do front squats, 
it's a little bit high because I can't hold the weight on my shoulders, but uh, it's pretty close. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's pretty much the same then for all squats, once you know any type of squat, and for all presses and for all rows, free weight rows. Um, it can be different between lat pull-downs and rows on machines because the cables have different frictions and things like that. And the pull-up is very similar to the bench press. It's just slightly faster. Normally on pull-ups it's about 0.20, 0.18, whereas on bench press it's tends to be about 0.15 to 0.18 on, on most people. But So this just marginally faster on the pull-up because there's a larger sticking point there in the middle. But it's fairly simple to work out. And once we know it, we know where failure is for every athlete. So we can judge uh, when we're doing the program, we can say, oh, yeah, I want you to go harder than that. It's too easy. Or I want you to not go as hard or that's spot on. So how, I know you mentioned experience level there. How different can that be across a group? Does that differ a lot or is that quite tight? Yes, it is. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it, it can differ a little. It's, it's about 0.05 to 0.07 uh, faster for less experienced people. Basically, it was their scaredy cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're scaredy cats and also they can't embrace the grind. Uh, and for good reason. So they get to a heavy squat and they go, oh, I don't know why I can lift anymore. And then you know, their one RM, according to them, is like 0.37 or something. Well, they're just scared of going heavier because maybe their technique is not good and they are scared and probably might for good reason. should say they're scaredy cats, but um, they're just not technically proficient or confident of lifting heavier and embracing the grind. Um, and I think we've all been with guys on bench press who, you know, they lift them really slow and someone cl- tries to come in and, grab the bar, they say, don't touch it, don't touch it, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, leave it, leave it, leave it. They can still speak while grinding out the smacks. They know they're going to get the weight. So people who are really experienced uh, know how to embrace the grind and actually can lift a bit slower. So and this is uh, brought out in the scientific literature that, uh, you know, people who are very experienced in the squat, and it doesn't matter if you're high bar or low bar squat, weightlifting style or powerlifting style, if it's uh, a raw squat, uh, you've got to be around that 0.25 maybe slightly less, but if you're inexperienced, you might be about 0.32, uh, 0.34, something like that, 0.35, um, things like that. Uh, uh, you know, experienced powerlifters get deadlift a bit slower as well because they, experienced powerlifters love grinding out a heavy deadlift, you know, it might be 0.13, 0.15, or less experienced people get to deadlift maybe 0.2, oh, that's enough for me. <laughs> All right, fair enough, sure, sure. You know, so... It, it, it does it. Your experience does affect it a little bit, but uh, and and there are situations of guys and girls who are really explosive, and um, they are faster speeds too. So I did test once a, a, a former Olympic four hundred meter runner, and his bench press speed was 0.25. and uh, he's not a scaredy cat. They just some people are just explosive. They physically can't grind because they don't don't grind. They are exploders. Uh, Brian Mann talks to me, he had an American football player, like a, one of the running guys, fast runners, and he could only squat a 0.4 and faster. He could not grind a squat. Um, so th- there are situations where there are individuals who are standard deviations away from normal. And that's not a bad thing. They're just super explosive. Happy days. <laughs> <you know? laughs> wow. You know, we don't say, oh, you should be able to go slower than that. You know, <laughs> we can... I'd love to be able to, you know, squat really fast like that. <laughs> but there are, you know, we just have to be aware that there are uh, outliers statistically, um, and that's a good thing. You know, they are explosive athletes, uh, and I've had that as well. You know, uh, I like to call them the Maseratis. They only go full speed or they crash, <laughs> so they don't grind. So in, in reality, would you be looking for the minimum velocity thresholds like you said, grouping them together. So for like a uh, a squat pattern, a pushing pattern, a pulling pattern, etc. Oh, what do you do the individual exercises for each player? How would you do that in the field? Uh, I, I would just then do it for bench press, the squat, um, a deadlift. The deadlift, if it's off the floor, is different to a Romanian style deadlift. The Romanian style deadlift could have got that stretch shortened cycle is faster, um, and uh, a, a row and a pull up. You know, so once you've got that, you've got it. So a bench press, 
uh, a squat, a free weight squat, a deadlift off the floor, a row and a pull up. And then the other exercises, you can just collect that training data during training. You know, if you're doing a set of Romanian deadlifts, how hard was that? Oh, it's effort level eight then and, you know, you're 0.7. You know, just collect a bit of data. Um, but if you you can just collect as you're going along of those exercises, basically. Uh, but uh, your main exercises, what I could call your KPI exercises, um, yeah, you could do a test of one, three or five reps on any of them and you'll, you'll be able to collect it. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Dan. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we get into the nitty gritty when it comes to the coaching element of the usage of VBT. So how strength levels change day to day and how VBT may be able to be used to regulate volume and intensity. We also discuss the individual differences when it comes to visual feedback and how that affects intent and some of the research in that area. So a really cool uh, part two coming up with Dan. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com, or visit their social media channels. So I know it's, like I say a couple of times, it's three years since we spoke last time. Is there anything new in the world of VBT, whether it be tech, whether it be how people are actually using it, that's changed in that time that would be interesting for people to, to hear about, given your vast traveling and experience? Um, well, there's a lot more tech now available, uh, a lot more tech. Um, Just let's, let's, what people don't sorry, realize. Sorry to interrupt, Dan. Is that a good thing, that there's more tech available, or does that confuse things, confuse the end user? It can confuse the end user because people jump onto the market and, you know, what are the validations of these things? I mean, if you look at the latest study on push, it was found to be extremely accurate, Um in a study done, and then you looked at free weights and Smith machine, and it was extremely accurate, extremely valid. Uh, yet people say, oh, I read it, it wasn't accurate. Now, what people never report, and I posted this on social media somewhere, but one of the guys at my uh, workshop, uh, is what barbell were you using? What was the device that was receiving the signal? Was it an Android device? Was it an Apple device? Was it iPhone 5? Or was it a modern one? And if we look at something like an Alico weightlifting bar, they have bar whip. So if you lift over 140 with any sort of Olympic bar, but especially a good Alico bar, and they're designed this way on purpose, I mean, it's, you know, to help people in weightlifting, the ends of the bar whip up more than the centre when you lock out really fast on a squat or a push press or a jerk, especially if it's over 140K. Now, where you put your device to get the measurement? Is it out near the end of the bar? Is it in the centre of the bar? So these things can affect the scores. And I don't think that, I don't think that people realise where you place your device to measure the, the score is important. And you must have consistency when you do that. So for me, I always place it uh, beside my left hand when I squat and in the centre of the bar when I bench press. But if I'm doing uh, push presses, I don't want it in the centre because it's going to hit the back of my neck or something. I put it exactly where I squat, same place, every single time. So I get very consistent scores. But I see some people uh, that put it different places on different days and wonder why they get different scores. Um, and then, you know, I've got a different score on this bar compared to that bar. Well, that's a Lego weightlifting bar. The other bar's a powerlifting bar. It's got a different uh, restitution, a different whippiness. So people need to realise the whippiness of bars can impact your scores. And so when they look at research and say, oh, that device is not found out to be accurate, 
Did they mention what bar they were using? Okay. You have to look what type of bar. So, you know, things like that. Um, the other big thing that is good, though, is there's a lot of research now on uh, using velocity and recovery and looking at, okay, well, if I stop my set at a certain velocity speed or percentage velocity loss across a set, uh, what is the time frame of my recovery? So, you know, if we have, if we look at squats, if we do a really hard set that's close to failure, say we're doing sets of six to eight reps and it's close to failure, the velocity loss from my first rep to my last rep will be over 40%. But if if I may say I've got an eight RM and I only do four reps, my velocity loss might only be 20%. And then if I only do maybe two reps, it might be 10 or 20%. Now, obviously, if I do less reps, less loss, velocity loss, I can recover quicker. And there's been a lot of research documenting the time frames of recovery on different velocity losses. Now, clearly, less velocity loss, quicker recovery. Well, that's not rocket surgery to know that. Uh, but then people have gone about started spousing, oh, we should only train at 20% velocity loss because you recover quicker. Well, if you only train at 20% velocity loss, you're not going to be pushing hard. Sooner or later, that, that, that looks good in an eight-week study or a six-week study, but when you're training rugby players who have a 30-week in-season and, a, say, a 12-week pre-season, you can't just train at 20% velocity loss for 42 weeks. You don't get strong doing that. You don't maintain muscle. So there's some good research on velocity loss and recovery, but people are extrapolating long-term training methods based on a short-term study, and I see that as worrying, that uh, you would only train with a 10% velocity loss or 20% velocity loss or things like that. You know, it, it, you know we have this thing called periodization. It seems to have worked because it works. Um, you know, there's times we're having a higher velocity loss or days of the week you know, where you have a higher velocity loss because you're training harder to effort level eight or nine and other days where you, you know, have a moderate velocity loss and other days where it might be a really low velocity loss because um, you want to recover quicker. So lots of good research, but be aware of uh, over, overarching and overriding statements that we should restrict our velocity loss to a certain percentage. They're short-term studies typically done on university students from Spain or not just Spain, but from anywhere, um, could be anywhere. Like, they do a lot of good research in Spain. There's a lot of statements coming from the re- – when people look at the research, I'm not saying the Spanish researchers, but people look at it saying, oh, we shall only train that 10% velocity loss or 20% velocity loss. You know, you, you just can't do that for long-term training, you know, 40-something weeks a year, 50 weeks a year, 8, 10 years in an athlete's career. You just won't make progress, progress, and you actually regress. So, I know this may sound obvious, but in terms of different velocity loss percentages, what? How do you change it depending on the focus? So, max strength focus, hypertrophy focus. How does that change the velocity loss moving through them that that range? Anything with max strength, I don't even look at the velocity loss. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's. I use RPE. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's related to your velocity loss anyhow. Okay, explain but that to us. Uh, well, um, yeah, your RPE is related to your velocity loss, so uh, or, or, the, or, or the speed. Uh, your RPE is related to how far away from your minimum velocity threshold you are. So if if I um, did a first rep, say I did a 3RM the other week on the squat, and the first rep was um, uh, 0.38, the second one's 0.34, the last one's 0.29. So anything below 0.3, it's so close to 10, uh, to effort level 10 or, or max velocity, uh, minimum velocity threshold of 0.25, they can call it a 10 or a 9.5. But that velocity loss of um, from 0.38 to 0.29, that only represents, what, uh, 15 or 20%? But that was as hard as you can go. So when you're lifting really heavy, sometimes these velocity loss percentages they don't really uh, they're not applicable. You're only doing three reps, so there's not a big velocity loss anyhow. It's maximum effort. Um, 
you know, my wife did a set once. The first rep was 0.32. The second rep was 0.28. She couldn't have done a, a third rep. We put a gun to her head. Good. So yeah. that 0. 0.04, 0. 0.04 represents one eighth of, of you know, 0. 0.04 to, related to 0. 0.32. So it's fifteen percent velocity loss. So we're going to say, oh, oh, you should be able to go to forty percent. No, she was a two RM. That's it. <laughs> so, you know, there's no more extra reps. So when you get lifting really heavy. It's the percentage of velocity loss is not so important. It's, you know, how far away from failure you are from your minimum velocity threshold. That's what it counts and, and your RPE level, which is related to it. So I, I don't have uh, a percentage when I'm looking at max strength running. I use the absolute velocity score, the absolute score. So what is your last rep and what is your first rep rather than a percentage? So I know that, okay, first rep of my 3RM is always around in the high threes, 0. 0.37, 0. 0.38. My, uh, if it's a 2RM or the second rep of a 3RM, it's going to be in the low threes, 0. 0.32, 0. 0.33, 0. 0.34. And if it's a third rep of a 3RM or fifth rep of a 5RM, it's going to be below 0. 0.3 or 0. 0.3 and below. So we just look at absolute scores when we're lifting heavy. Don't get worried about percentages and that bullshit. Just Okay, this is my score, boom, and this is how far away from failure I am. So, uh, you know, so, so you plan to do a two RM and you, you do one hundred fifty kilos, and your second rep on a squat was you know point three eight, but you know your velocity at minimum threshold is point two five. Hey, let's put one sixty five or one sixty seven on the bar because you're not there yet. You, you, we know you have more in you. Let's do that extra set. So use that rather than percentages. But when you're main, trying to recover quicker and emphasize speed and power in the workout, yeah, then we want to minimize our velocity loss to, you know, if it's squatting, uh, uh, if you really want to minimize it, 10% or less. If you want uh, a figure of 20% is a good figure for maintenance. So on my, I have a day, if I talk about my personal training, which I hate doing, but I have a, a day where, on my last set, it's what I call my moderate day. It's roughly around 20% velocity loss. So I do five reps at 80%. So that maintains strength, builds a little bit of muscle, maintains a little bit of strength, et cetera, et cetera. It's where it's not here nor there. I have a heavier day where you know, I don't even look at the percentage. I just look at the number, uh, you know, <laughs> the number of the first rep and the number of the last rep. So if it's an RP9, I know what I'm supposed to go to. If it's an RP8, I know what I'm supposed to go to. If it's RP10. Or nine point five, and knowing what, and you know, keep putting on weight till I get that, till I get that uh, velocity and effort level. And then if you have a real speed day, then you want to make minimize that velocity loss to maybe ten percent on squats. If it's jump squats, it's five percent. If it's cleans, it's five percent. If it's bench press, we can almost double those numbers or one and a half times those numbers. So when you bench press a really high rep set, say ten reps, you can looking at maybe sixty percent velocity loss if it's close to failure, if at level 9 or 9.5 or 10. If you're only doing five reps at a 10 rep max, it might be 25 or 30% velocity loss. If you're doing three reps at a 10 rep max, you might only be looking at 10 or 15% velocity loss. So that's just, if you're doing three reps at a 10 rep max or three reps at 75%, you're emphasizing velocity, you want to minimize that velocity loss. Now they're, they're the three different ways or three different zones, you know, I think. So if you if you... Looking at velocity loss, and you mentioned before about the so it's your, your first rep that you're basing this off. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, first rep in a set. Yep. Yeah. So then, then people are them anomalies that maybe the second rep does the tech detect that that second rep is actually the best one, and we're going to go off that, or is it always the first? Yeah, yeah it does. Well, it depends on the tech, but the push okay. does anyhow. Okay. Yeah. And if you get if you get a second rep is better than the first. There's something wrong with your technique or your psychological preparation. That's what I always find. And, and I, that happens to me often when I travel. Um, I miss a few days training. I'm out of the groove. Uh, your first rep is a bit wonky. Um, you Between the first rep and the second rep, you give yourself a psychological uppercut. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, you fix, fix your shit up on the second or third rep and the velocity goes up. Uh, and so we do see that. Or someone's a bit of a, a, a scaredy cat with a heavy squat or a heavy deadlift and, um, you know, the first rep gives them a bitch slap to the head and they fire up, they do better in the second and third. Well, there's something wrong with their psychological preparation. 
or, or their technique. They're just a little bit off, uh, out of the groove. So it does happen, um, but we always want our best rep to be our first rep normally. So when someone's in good shape and their technique is good and they're psychologically well prepared, it should be their first rep. Except with rows, rowing exercises is different because you've got that concentric start. Mm-hmm. Or okay, any exercise so- that concentrically, it could be a second rep. Yeah. So just diving into one of the other three things that you mentioned around why use why measure velocity, and that's the feedback and motivation. What kind of results are we seeing with using a velocity measure versus no motivation at all? Yeah, there's a, there's a few studies done um, looking at that. And they're quite interesting. Um, so they looked at it, – it's mainly uh, in the, uh, the first few reps because athletes fatigue. If they're going really hard, they, uh, they just fatigue. So uh, definitely a, a, a few studies. Uh, Weekly's done some. Uh, uh, you know, and giving feedback, visual feedback versus number feedback and so forth. Uh, but we, we normally see – uh, with light weights, uh, something like a five to ten percent improvement on the f- velocity of the of the first few reps, maybe the first three reps in a set or something like that. So uh, it, it can also it depends on the person. It can also be the last few reps they they can improve as well. Uh, and it's basically just your accountability. So if an athlete's doing say six or eight jumps, um, they know they're going to the best one on the first or second. They try really hard, and then you know. They cruise on home sometimes, um, but if you measure every rep and make them accountable, that they try hard to the very end. So it just depends on the, the person, the exercise. But we do see uh, better performance when someone's getting feedback of their velocity. Now that doesn't have to be them looking at a screen because you know people, some people say, "Oh, I should set up the iPad so they look at it." Should never do that. Um, you can just have a sound like "bing." When we see our plyometric power system, which was the first thing we used back in the 1990s, uh, you just set a, a velocity thing and it would go bing, bing, or bong uh, when you got your score. So as, you, as you're coming down from your jump during your eccentric falling back to earth phase, you'd hear the sound bing or bong. That helped motivate you for the next rep. So it could be something as simple as that. Um, or, you know, it could be just someone yelling at the score, you know, 0.9, 0.9, 0.85. Something like that. So just giving feedback. I, I don't like the idea of looking at a screen. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster, especially on something like heavy squats or bench press. You know? uh, this feedback stuff is better when it's lightweights and it's uh, jumping and power exercises, throwing and jumping and things like that. Uh, you know, If you're trying to look at a screen for velocity feedback while you're heavy squatting, <laughs> I hope your spotters are ready because you're just going to lose that weight. <laughs> <laughs> You're cognitive on something else rather than the processes associated with squat success. <laughs> have you have you noticed a difference, Dan? In is it very individual in terms of who actually reacts positively or negatively to that feedback, or is a difference between uh, inexperienced versus experienced where they may get bigger benefits? Uh, no, I haven't noticed any difference. So that, that actually okay. that's a really good question. That should be a study. <laughs> <laughs> um, get me in. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, that's actually pretty good. I see almost all the people I, I work with were professional rugby players or Olympic divers or you know Olympic level athletes or something like that. They're all highly motivated. Um, but even when we go to a a class and we just do uh, measure, say, jump squat velocity with a dowel rod on the shoulders, simple jump. You have to let everyone have two sets because everyone has a set, gets a score. As soon as someone beats them, they want another score, another go to get a better score. People are competitive. So I think that's the nature of the people who are attracted to strength conditioning and, and ath- athletic pursuits all around us. We are competitive, so uh, we, even with ourselves, it doesn't matter if we want to beat someone, but we always find that people want to have two or three goes at everything. So when I was training with the Broncos and, and you know we we're measuring uh, velocity of jump squats and bench press throws, we do this every week. You know, We, we were limit the number of sets. It's, we'd say... Okay, it's three sets, guys. And some guy would lose. I want to have a fourth set. You say, well, mate, the grand final's on grand final day. If you lose, you can't come back the next week and, you know, stay have another go. This is it. Perform when you need to perform. Um, something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's – I haven't seen a difference in the level of athlete. 
Uh, but that's a good question. Maybe there is. Great question, Rob. Oh, cool. No, thank you. Um, just on, again, on one of the other three things that you mentioned, that was um, strength levels on a given day. Is there anything that you do maybe in the warm-up to actually give you an idea of what's going on for that day so you can adjust things and, like you say, within the session periodization? Uh, yeah, but I, I almost always keep the, the, the first set the same anyhow. But sometimes okay. you can walk in that warm-up. So I always, for example, in my own squats, and my last warm-up set is always 120 kilograms for two reps. I always do that, always. Um, and if it's sometimes because I travel on, on planes for all, you know, uh, sleeping overnight in a plane and you're stiff as a dog and, you, you know, you do that last warm-up set and uh, the score is a lot lower than you normally be, um, I might still go to my first planned set and use that as a judge because sometimes that last warm-up set it slaps me up, it cuts me in the head and it gets me fired up for my first set. But then I, I will adjust normally after the first set if I have to. But in certain sport athletes, you might. So if you've got a surfer or a swimmer and they have afternoon training and swimming or surfing in the morning and they've had a big session and, and your test uh, is uh, three reps of body weight and look at their velocity and then it tells you how much to put on for their training sets. If their velocity is 0.05 different decrease, that suggests a 2.5% change in strength. So if someone normally does a pull-up at 0.75 and they come in and they're 0.68, you think, well, they're at least 2.5% weaker. So instead of doing plus 10 today for their three sets of five, 10 kilos out of their waist, I might just use 7.5 kilos. So when we adjust it, it's, it's only a small amount normally. So 0.05 difference with any standard weight is a 2.5% change in 1RM. So if someone's 0.05 different, uh, if they're uh, 0.1 different, so they normally warm up and the body weight and they're 0.75, today they're 0.65, well, we know they're 5% weaker, so take 5% 1RM off their loads. So they normally bench press 90 kilos for three sets of five, or go back to 85 or something to get the same effort level on RPE for the same reps. So you can just make those small adjustments, um, definitely. Uh, so you can do it. So is that, is that, oh, God, mate, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so you can do, you can use the last warm-up set. I always recommend people measure the last warm-up set before the training sets on the key exercises. So your last warm-up set of squats or bench press or deadlift and just do one or two reps and have a standard thing where this is our last warm-up set that we always do or for a swimmer or a surfer or something it might be, uh, last part of our warm-up is three reps of body weight to pull up and look at the best rep. Just have that key indicator warm-up set, and that helps you fine-tune. But normally, you're only fine-tuning 25 or 5%. The rest of the stuff should be part of your periodization. You shouldn't have athletes changing more than 5% in a week just due to random shit, you know. Um, it, it, they can change due to you know sickness or a hard training load from their sports training, and that's why we might change it, but it shouldn't be too much. But if it is, you, sh you should see it in the last warm-up set or uh, possibly in the first training set and then adjust the rest of the workout from there. So one last thing that I want to put to you, and it's something that's become really, really popular and lots of people talking about, and that's um, force velocity profiling. Is that something that you would do with your athletes or with yourself, um, or is that something that's, that you wouldn't encourage? Uh, if you mean the force velocity profiling stuff that's going around for sprinting, I mean that's just that's just stuff that we did in the eighties and nineties, Bosco and and Harkin and Comey, and uh, it's just it's the emperor's clothes in a new dress. Uh, just, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's what I always do is basically I say to people, you can do a force velocity, but it can relate to different exercises. So. What I say to people uh, is do a jump squat with a dowel rod on your shoulders, do a one RM squat, and do a jump squat with 50% of your one RM load. Rank people. Are they in the same order? So you've got someone who's really strong, but you know, really slow on a jump squat. You should see that they're maybe their 50% one RM velocity is not that good. You see someone's really fast with a dowel rod, 
but really weak in a 1RM? Well, what's it already telling you? <laughs> so it's not new. Um, I'll give you an example. 20, 26 years ago, the Australian diving team, Australian diving squad, none of them lifted weights before in their life, but they all did plyometrics four days a week. So what do you think their force velocity profile looked like? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Higher velocity, low on force. <laughs> so it was a case of, hey, we're going to learn to squat and do heavy <laughs> So, you yeah, know, it, it's nothing new, um, but if it helps people make better decisions, sure. But remember, jumping is jumping and sprinting is sprinting, and they are slightly different motor skills the last time I looked. How we apply force can be similar to a degree, but there's also enough variation to say that I need to specifically apply force in a certain way. But, sure, if someone's really strong, uh, but uh, not moving fast, that probably tells you they need more velocity training. That's not rocket surgery. You know? so, uh, and if someone's fast but pretty weak, yeah, well, the avenue of performance enhancement for the sprinting is probably get stronger per kilo of body weight. That's not new. That's not, we don't need any zany force plate uh, profiling to do that. I mean, you know, we did at the Broncos an upper body for oh, maybe 20-something years ago. Throw an empty bar, here's your 1RM, 50% of max. Yeah. And we also used to do 30 and 60% of max and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it's not new. But it is a good thing to do force velocity profiling. But I, I think it can be slightly different for different exercises, what I'm trying to say. You can't say just extrapolate uh, jumps and sprints because the, the correlation between even a body weight jump with no arms and 10 or 20, 10 or 40 meters sprinting, it might only be 0.7 or 0.8. So that's only 50% related anyhow. So you might need to have different ways of analyzing rather than just a force velocity profile. Don't, don't base everything on, don't base all your programming for speed training on a force velocity profile generated through jumping and squatting is what I'm saying. There are other avenues of, performance enhancement you may need to look at okay excellent well i'm going to keep you to the hour one thing that i want to touch on i don't know if you've got it in front of you if anyone wants to get to know <clears throat> excuse me more about the courses that happen all around the world where are the next ones coming up just so people can know and i know it's on your website anyway so people can check it out there but where yeah. are you uh, where are you and the guys heading to next uh well with the whole it's not just me doing it. we've got a lot of great instructors so uh the next one we have is in, uh, in, in, if you're in Canada, it's in French, or if you speak French and want to fly to Quebec, uh, Yannick Morin's doing that one in uh, February 16th. And then we have uh, two in um, uh, Taichung City. One is in Chinese language, one's in Japanese language. Uh, Dr. Kimi Sato is doing them, and they're in uh, February, uh, yeah, February 16th, February 21st. Then we have another one in, in Toronto by in English, Chris Chap, Christopher Chapman. And then we have one in Illinois. Uh, Chris Chapman's doing that one. That's in March. And then we have another one in Montreal. That'll be in French. That's by Yannick as well, and that'll be in April. And uh, that's what we've got so far. There'll be more and more coming up. We have courses in uh, the UK, South Africa, uh, Australia. Um, if people... Uh, we have some in Brazil as well. So if you speak Portuguese, um, you know, so we have them in different languages. Uh, we're working on one in Spanish is to do one in Spanish. So sooner or later we'll have that one. Uh, I'm trying to learn a bit more Spanish and improve my Spanish. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> on the cards. Um, but one of our instructors, Cedric, he, he, he speaks uh, Spanish fluently, so I think he'll be doing that. Um, but, yeah, we're having courses coming up. So you can just go to my website, uh, danbakerstrength.com. And look for VBT courses. And the good deal about these courses, if, if you sign up, there's an option when you sign up to buy a push. Take that option. They're selling you a push at cost price. So you get a push and a course for basically paying the price of what you'd buy a push for if you just ordered a push online. So you may as well get the push and attend a course that teaches you how to use it, network with a bunch of 
great coaches and guys and girls. Uh, it's a really good thing because Push's data shows that people who have showed have been shown how to use the device or have data on how to use the device, you know, what uh, velocity scores you should get for different exercises for different percent 1RM, they use the device more often and get more out of it. I mean, they have all that data. So if you're going to get a device, attend one of my courses, learn how to use it, it really adds a lot to your training. You, you just make much better decisions in your training session and in your programming, much better decisions. So just to be super clear, Danny, it's your – uh, it's your content, but it's been yes. delivered by these various different instructors around the world. Yes, and, and uh, all those people have been uh, taught by me how to do this course. We had a instructor's course in in, um, in Toronto last year, and all these people have been handpicked. Of course, they're experts, and uh, yeah, we got one of our guys, Derek Wilcox, is a world record holder of the squat. I've got Dr. Kim. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, <laughs> like. Um, Dr. Kimi Sato, I mean, he's a legend in velocity stuff anyhow. Um, and I'm honored that he's doing, like he's teaching in my course. And he's, he's a great researcher. Um, uh, Chris Chapman, uh, we got lots of great strength conditioning coaches are doing these and, and more people say, oh, damn, when can I be one of your instructors? <laughs> we'll come to our instructor course when it's on next time. Um, but it, it's a good course. It's got lots of information. It's got all the data for different velocities at different percentages of different exercises, uh, you know, squat, deadlift, hip thrust, bench press, overhead press, rows, pull-downs, uh, pull-ups, you know, all these percentages, what a typical person would get. It's got all that stuff. It's got research. And if you're a research head, I've got all these papers that you can go Google and download and find out extra information if you want it, although you won't need to because it's all in the course. But, you know, it's a good course. And I highly recommend it for people. Excellent. And um, any other questions that people have, Dan, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you personally? Through the website still? Yeah, email me. Please don't answer. Don't, don't send me uh, questions on social media. Because I often tra travel to China, and in China there is no Google, there is no Facebook, there is no Instagram. So I won't be getting your questions, nor will I answer them. <laughs> So use email, please. You go to my website and send it through my thing. And if you have a basic question, I'll answer it. If you say, can I have a look at my program and can you give me an overview of how my program's going? I'm not going to do that. That's a complex thing that takes time and uh, I can't do that. But if you just ask me a simple question, I'll give you a simple answer to the best of my ability. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Really appreciate you coming on, appreciate you coming on for a, a second time. And... Um... Yeah, we'll keep in touch and stick around and I'll have a little chat to you in a minute. No worries. Thank you for having me, Rob. It's uh, always a pleasure to be on your podcast, mate. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in to episode 280 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Dan for coming on for a part two, a long overdue part two, three and a half years down the line since I originally spoke to him for episode 100. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU and to Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. As I say every week, the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys supporting it. So I really appreciate um, their input and their support. So thanks for tuning in again and I will speak to you with more fantastic guests next week.